Okay, so good evening and welcome to those of you who've just arrived into this kaleidoscope that is the Forest Refuge Sangha. So last week I started exploring wisdom in relation to one particular aspect of dukkha, suffering, that the Buddha highlighted in his teaching on the first noble truth, namely that, quote, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So just briefly, for those of you who weren't here last week, these five clinging aggregates are material form, which includes our physical bodies, feeling tone or vedana, perception, volitional mental formations, and consciousness. So these are five somewhat technical terms, and I'll be coming back to them later, either tonight or in later talks and perhaps some of the morning reflections. So for now, just to say that the Buddha chose to highlight these five particular categories because they're aspects of our experience that we tend to cling to, in other words, to grasp, to hold on to, or the opposite, to resist and reject. So either way, they tend to be areas of our life that we identify with strongly, that we take personally as being me or mine or who I am. Five arenas of experience that we tend to construct or try to construct a fixed and solid and static identity from, which, as the Buddha identified in his definition of the first noble truth, is dukkha, unsatisfactory, stress, distress, suffering. So as I mentioned last week, in some ways we could frame the whole of our meditation practice in terms of just two aspects, two movements or two fundamental experiences of clinging and release. Release being what we experience when clinging is absent. So in this context I'm using the term release as a synonym for freedom. So how might we do this as an actual practice? If, if it's of interest at times throughout the day, you may just take some time to settle back and to receive the ever-changing flow of experiences at each of the six sense doors. So in other words, bring awareness to sights and sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, and mental activity which includes thoughts and emotions, moods and mind states. So in any moment of experience, just one of these six things is happening, a contact at one of the six, five physical sense doors and the mind. So as you probably know, practicing like this is sometimes referred to as choiceless attention or open awareness, just that settling back and receiving whatever experiences are arising moment to moment. For example, perhaps we notice hearing, and then the breath, a sensation, a memory, the breath, a wisp of emotion, another memory, the breath, and so on. And perhaps for periods of time, there's a sense of just staying present and steady with that flow of changing experience. But then, at some point, out of that flow or flux, 
one particular experience suddenly seems to grab us. Perhaps it's a pain in the knee and that suddenly becomes me, mine, the one who I am, the one in pain. Or it might be a sudden, unexpected, unpleasant memory of an ex-partner. And again, instead of just being known as a memory, it becomes me, who I am. And then from that initial hook, a whole chain reaction starts. And in a very short space of time, perhaps just one or two mind moments, we construct a whole mental world of reactivity that we then inhabit as if it was real. And we suffer all because of that clinging to or identifying with experience. So that's a simple uh, illustration of how clinging happens. How does release happen? By not taking the bait in the first place. So seeing if we cannot let anything in that flow of moment-to-moment experience hook us as being me or mine or who I am. Which might sound simple in theory, but in practice, as I'm sure you all know, is not at all easy. So in fact, we could think of this whole practice that we're doing here as being this training in recognizing clinging and how to release it on more and more refined levels. So that over time, as the practice deepens, those moments of release become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. Until eventually, to quote the Thai meditation master Ajahn Buddhadasa, those moments of temporary nibbana can convert to complete or permanent nibbana. So for most of us, though, this training in clinging and release is a gradual one. And we're fortunate that the Buddha gave us actual practices that we can do to help soften this tendency to get caught in holding on or resisting in relation to these five aggregates. So last week I spoke a bit about the first aggregate, which is the clinging to material form in terms of the body. And this evening I'd like to go a bit further into that aggregate because it is such a powerful, even primal area of clinging. So this time I'd like to explore it in terms of some actual meditation techniques that we can practice to help reduce this tendency to cling. And I'll be drawing on some of the practices from the Satipatthana Sutta, focusing particularly on the first establishment, which is mindfulness of the body. So as many, maybe most of you know, this uh, section of the sutta has six different techniques for exploring mindfulness of the body. The first three are mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of postures, and mindfulness of daily activities. And these three are pretty commonly taught. And the emphasis with these three is on knowing our bodily experience from within just as it is, so cultivating an attitude of bare awareness or non-conceptual knowing in relation to whatever our physical experience is. But then the next three practices in this section on mindfulness of the body have a slightly different approach. They use concepts 
to help us develop a wiser relationship to the body. And these three are not quite so commonly practiced. They are contemplating the body in relation to its anatomical parts, contemplating the body in relation to its elemental qualities, and contemplating the body as a corpse in decay. So you might get a sense from hearing that list why these practices are not so commonly taught in the West, outside of monastic settings. And perhaps some of you might notice just a trace of clinging in the form of resistance, even to the idea of hearing what these practices are about. So if that's true for you, I hope that you can keep in mind that the point of them is to support insight, to support clear seeing, so that we can live with more ease, more happiness, more freedom in relation to our own bodies and the bodies of others. So pretty much all of these different techniques within the Satipatthana Sutta are designed to help release the habit of identification with experience, starting with clinging to the body as me and mine. Because based on this mistaken assumption, we tend to think that we should be in complete control of our bodies. And as I mentioned last week, we tend to spend enormous amounts of time and energy and money on all kinds of futile strategies to try to make the body do what we want. We try to make it always look lovely. We try to prevent it from aging. We try to avoid it getting sick. Unconsciously or unconsciously, we try to avoid, deny the truth that sooner or later it's going to die. So these ways of relating to the body are all symptoms of delusion. And the more strongly we are invested in them, the more we suffer. So different cultures around the world have very different ways of relating to the body. But in the mainstream culture that I've been brought up in, we tend to have a very distorted and superficial skin-deep perception of the body. So we objectify our own and each other's bodies, and value them based almost totally on visual appearance, according to particular norms of attractiveness that are created by consumerism and that are almost completely impossible for ordinary people to attain. And I don't know about for you, but when I really let that in, it feels tragic that we value ourselves and others based almost entirely on the shape and size and age and color of our bodies instead of more meaningful values such as the quality of our hearts and minds, our kindness, compassion, wisdom, and so on. And a lot of the time we aren't even aware of just how immersed we are in this culture of valuing external appearances and trying to make our bodies conform to these impossible ideals. So I was fortunate, pretty close to the start of my own meditation practice, to get to spend some time in a different environment, a different culture, where I was at least temporarily able to experience some relief from this pressure. 
So it was quite a few years ago now that I spent three months volunteering at a meditation center in a monastery in Thailand. And by Western standards, the accommodation there was quite basic. So there was no hot water, no flush toilets, no showers, no mirrors anywhere. And we were doing a lot of physical work, such as gardening and repainting the buildings. So most of the time we wore work clothes that we borrowed from a kind of community closet. So these were mostly secondhand t-shirts and worn out old pants rather than our own clothes. And while we were there, we didn't have access to computers or the internet or books or magazines or media of any kind. So we weren't exposed to any kind of advertising for three whole months. And I didn't even realize how freeing this was until I was leaving Thailand and I got to the airport. And I was standing in line at passport control and I suddenly became aware that my mind was noticing the clothes of the other women in line, was really registering how their hair was styled and what kind of makeup they were wearing and what kind of fragrances they smelled of, and so on and so on. And then I suddenly caught sight of my own reflection in a storefront window, and boom, there was this like a tidal wave of comparing mind. And because it had been so absent for so long, when it came back, it was so painful. And it felt like a form of madness, even insanity, which in some ways it is. Because the advertising industry and capitalism tyrannize us with messages that we're not good enough, we're not beautiful enough, we're not young enough, we're not fit enough, we're not stylish enough, so that we'll spend more on trying to soothe this ever-present feeling of lack and inadequacy. And sadly, we often internalize these messages We objectify our own bodies and even think of ourselves as a collection of body parts and identify with those bits we like or don't like. So it's common to hear people say things like, I hate my flabby belly or I hate my big nose or I hate my feeble biceps as if that's me, that's who I am. I am my flabby belly and my big nose and my feeble biceps. And yet none of us chose our bodies And we really don't have much control over them. So having compassion for that. And again, as I mentioned last week, knowing this, we're not supposed to neglect our health. This is not about saying, okay, well, the body's just the body, you can't control it. Neglect our hygiene or our grooming and wander around wearing a hessian sack. It's not that the activities of taking care of the body are the problem. It's the degree of clinging that's the issue. And given that these distorted ways of seeing the body can be so pervasive and so powerful, how do we start to loosen the grip? So how do we start to see the body with wisdom as it actually is, impermanent, not completely under our control, and neither inherently beautiful nor inherently unbeautiful. So this might be where the fourth contemplation from mindfulness of the body comes in. It's contemplation of the body in terms of the list of 32 anatomical parts. 
many of you probably have at least read this list. Maybe you've done this as a practice, but this list is not intended to be a full catalog of the body's anatomy. It's just a kind of a representative selection of different bits of the body. And it's in a particular order that starts with those that are most solid, such as the bones, and then it progresses to those that are less solid, and then it finishes with liquids, such as saliva and urine. So traditionally, this practice is done by reciting the names of the parts of the body out loud while noticing any responses to each word. And in a moment, I'd like to read that traditional list so we can experiment with it. But before you hear the list, just to say that some of the parts that are named, you might be able to get a direct felt sense of them. For example, the bones. You might be able to feel the hardness of the bones. Some of the other um, parts, though, you might not be able to get a sense of. So perhaps the liver Perhaps you're not even, like me, completely sure where the liver actually is, let alone what it feels like. But you can be pretty sure that you do have a liver somewhere in there, because if you didn't, you probably wouldn't be sitting here. So as I list these body parts, you're invited just to connect with that part of the body in whatever way you can. might be a felt sense, might be just an intellectual knowledge, Perhaps some of you have studied anatomy, so you might have a visual sense of it. And as you do this, just to notice also any reactions in the mind. Perhaps, in some cases, little flickers of aversion or confusion, resistance or irritation. Perhaps blankness or neutrality, interest, openness, maybe even gratitude. So it's not that we're trying to manufacture any specific response, just bringing mindfulness to the body part that's being listed and notice any reactions that might come up. So these are the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta. Further practitioners, a contemplative contemplates the same body bounded by the skin up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head, as full of many kinds of substances, saying, in this body there are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, Lungs, small intestines, bowels, the stomach and its contents, excrement, 
bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, oils, saliva, mucus of the nose, lubricants of the joints, and urine. So what's it like just to hear these different aspects of the body named in that very matter-of-fact way? For me, it helped to reveal how much I unconsciously try to deny the biological nature of the body, to censor out all of those aspects of the body that are not conventionally attractive. So it can be a relief just to acknowledge that, yes, this body is organic, and it does produce bile and phlegm and pus and sweat and so on. And the point of this is not to cultivate distaste, but to cultivate a more neutral, balanced attitude. So the sutta then goes on to use a simile to illustrate what we're trying to cultivate here. It says, in relation to all the different parts of the body, just as though there were a bag open at both ends, full of many sorts of grain, such as hill rice, red rice, beans, peas, millet and white rice and a person with sound eyes were to open the bag and contemplate it. This is hill rice. This is red rice. These are beans. These are peas. This is millet. This is white rice. So too, a contemplative contemplates the same body bounded by the skin up from the soles of the feet and down from the top of the head as full of many kinds of substances. In this body, there are head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and so on. So we're trying to just know the organic nature of the body with an attitude of non-reactivity, neither being fascinated nor repulsed, simply knowing with equanimity the truth of how our bodies are. And if we do choose to do this as a practice, we also want to pay attention to the mind to make sure that it is developing equanimity and not creating any kind of aversion to the body because aversion is the opposite of what this practice is intended to do. So if you do find you're getting off balance in some way, then just let it go and perhaps change to some metta or self-compassion practice. And then if, when you're feeling more balanced, you might touch into it again, if it feels useful. So once we've got used to contemplating the body's organic nature, the next session of the section of the sutta invites us to experience the body's insubstantiality, to know it very directly as an interplay of changing qualities or elements that are traditionally referred to as earth, water, fire, and wind or air. So the instructions in the sutta ask us to review this same body, 
however it is placed, however disposed, as consisting of elements thus. In this body there are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air element. So nowadays we might hear this term, the four elements, and think, well, that's not very sophisticated. We all know there are way more than four elements. But again, these four elements are not intended to be a scientific description of the body. They're a way of understanding different aspects of our physical experience more directly, more immediately, as qualities of hardness or softness, solidity, liquidity, warmth, coolness, movement, vibration, and so on. So perhaps a better translation of the term four elements might be four elemental qualities. And the benefit of exploring the body in these terms is that it helps us to know our physical experience just as it is without adding the sense of me and mine and who I am. So for example, instead of thinking my lungs are rising and falling or my knees hurt or my bladder is full, we can simply know sensations of expansion, contraction, tingling, pressure, and so on. So in a way, this is a a kind of a language that we can learn that helps us to stay more present with the immediacy of these sensations. So for a little bit more detail, this first elemental quality of earth, this stands as a symbol for any experience of hardness or softness, in the body, just as the earth itself can be hard or soft. So, for example, earth quality includes sensations that are hard or soft, solid, rough, smooth, heavy, or light. So you might experiment and see if you can get a sense of that right now, if there's perhaps the feeling of the weight of the body sinking into the ground beneath you. That heaviness is earth. Or if you clamp your teeth together for a moment, can you feel the solidity of the teeth? That's another example of earth. Or if you clench one hand and you feel the fingernails, the hardness of the fingernails pressing into your flesh, that's also earth. And as we get more familiar with this language of the four elemental qualities, we can recognize that just as these qualities of solidity and hardness and softness and the earth in our own bodies, there's those same qualities out there. So next time you're out in the woods, you might even experiment with hugging the trunk of a big old maple tree. And you might recognize that same quality of solidity and hardness that's present in your own body. Or if you're sitting on a rock, you can know the same minerals in the rock. Some of those same minerals are in our own bones. And when we die, those minerals will return back to the earth. And then the second of these four elemental qualities is water. And on one level, this is pretty obvious. Any experience of liquid or fluid in the body, saliva or tears or joint fluid, urine, blood, and so on. 
And it also includes the qualities of stickiness and cohesion because water can be used to bind things together. For example, if you mix water into flour, you get dough. Or if you mix water with dry sand, you can mold the sand into shapes. So again, you might take a moment to get a sense of water in the body right now. If you've swallowed, you can feel the mouth filling slowly with saliva again. Water. If your eyes are closed, you might move your eyeballs from side to side, up and down. And you can feel the lubrication that allows your eyeballs to slide around. That's an aspect of water element. Or more subtly, perhaps you might notice the difference between the in-breath and the out-breath and how the out-breath usually has just a bit more moisture in it and you might feel that at the nostrils. That too is water. So we can know this quality of fluidity in our own bodies and know that it's identical to the water molecules out there. Our bodies are roughly 60% water. And when we die, that water will evaporate, become clouds, and eventually return to the river and the sea. So the third elemental quality is fire. And this symbolizes temperature, whether something is experienced as hot or cold. And it also refers to processes in the body such as digestion and aging. So the fire elemental quality is also about metabolism. It's our life energy. And again, you might just get a sense of that right now and notice any areas of the body that feel quite warm. Know that as fire element. And again, perhaps a bit more subtly, you might notice the difference between the in-breath and the out-breath, this time in terms of temperature. So you might notice that the out-breath has a bit more warmth. And again, you might feel this at the nostrils. Even more subtly, perhaps you can sense into the process of digestion going on in the stomach and the intestines right now the warmth that allows our food to be converted into nutrients. That's also fire element. And again, this quality of warmth or coolness is something that can be known externally too. Everything has a temperature. So we can feel the warmth or the coolness of the floor or the cushion beneath our feet or our sitting bones. We can feel the air against our skin. And when we die, the warmth of our bodies will cool to the same temperature as the environment around us. So the fourth elemental quality is air, sometimes also referred to as wind. And it's, again, on one level obvious, the air in the body, perhaps the process of breathing, or of gas at times in the intestines. And as wind, it also symbolizes movement, motion, vibration. And it can also be known as space. 
So sometimes when the mind is quiet, it's possible to sense the cavities in the body, perhaps the lungs or the opening of the nostrils or the ears. Again, just taking a moment to tune into air elements, perhaps taking a slightly deeper breath and feeling the air rushing in through the nose or the mouth. And as the oxygen comes into the body, you might feel the lungs expand and then contract. That's air. Perhaps there are some gurglings of gas moving through the stomach and the intestines. And again, that is air. So this quality of air within the body is just the same as the air outside. The air we take into our lungs is the same air that's all around us. We're literally breathing each other's air. And when we die, the air in our lungs and all of our other bodily cavities will escape and return to the atmosphere. So that's just a very brief tour of the experiences that we might Um, know through these four elemental qualities and at first it might seem a strange way of relating to experience but as we get familiar with it it can offer us a deep insight into the nature of the body we see more clearly that every aspect of our experience is constantly changing none of it belongs to us none of it is under our control And we're not nearly as separate from the rest of nature as we often like to think. We have a much more immediate sense that what happens to the environment happens to us. And we can't wreak havoc on the nature out there without also having it affect us as human beings. So understanding, experiencing the body directly in in terms of these four elements... In a similar way, Bhikkhu Analio has pointed out this can reveal the radical vulnerability of the body in relation to the elements. He says, this body is entirely dependent on an adequate supply of the four elements from outside. It can survive without receiving supplies of the earth element in the form of food for a few weeks or months at most. Our body can survive without being supplied with the water element in the form of beverages for just some days. It can survive being deprived of the fire element in the form of warmth, such as when naked outside in cold winter, only for hours. It can survive without supply of the wind element in the form of oxygen merely for minutes. Our body is entirely dependent on these four elements. And out of these four, the one element we most pressingly need is at the same time the most ephemeral, the wind element in the form of the motion of air going in and out. And this dependency reveals the precariousness of our physical existence. So understanding the truth of impermanence on deeper and deeper levels is supported by the last contemplation in this Sutta on Mindfulness of the Body. This is a series of contemplations of a corpse in decay, 
I'm not going to make you do that tonight, don't worry. But I wanted to just name that this sutta, part of the sutta, is definitely not taught so much in retreat centers. Because when it comes to the impermanence of our bodies, most of us resist that truth to varying degrees. On a, on a societal level, I've been mentioning, there are whole industries that are devoted to denying the truth that our bodies are aging and dying. And for most of us, that brings up at times a kind of a primal fear, an existential terror that we've developed all kinds of strategies to avoid feeling. But no matter how much we might deny it, that fear is still there. And living in fear and denial is also a source of suffering. It may seem counterintuitive, but when we're able to turn towards our suffering, in this case the fear of death, and meet it gradually, gently, with kindness and care and compassion, eventually that suffering can release. And again, I want to acknowledge that this is not easy. In fact, I was recently reading about some neuroscience research that has discovered that our brains, in fact, do their best to stop us from dwelling on our demise. So a recent study found that the brain shields us from existential fear by categorizing death as an unfortunate event that only happens to other people. Sounds like some of you might recognize that. So the, it, this is a quote from the research. The brain does not accept that death is related to us, said Yair Dor Ziedemann at Bar Ilan University in Israel. We have this primal mechanism that means when the brain gets information that links self to death, something tells us it's not reliable and we shouldn't believe it. The moment you have this ability to look into your own future, you realize that at some point you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. That goes against the grain of our whole biology, which is helping us to stay alive. So I share that just to give a sense of what we're up against here. And for most of us, this process of coming to terms with our own mortality has to be a gradual one. It's counterproductive to try to force it, but neither do we want to keep postponing it. So sometimes younger people think that death contemplation is just for old people like me. But often the delusion of immortality is strongest in young people. And so in some ways this practice can be of even more benefit. And also young people have, hopefully, the good fortune of having more time to explore this rather than waiting until closer to the end of life and suddenly realizing that time is running out. But there's also the truth that we don't know how long we're going to live, whether we're young or old. People die unexpectedly every day, every hour, every minute, every second. So it pays to start turning towards our own mortality now knowing that it is inevitable and only the time of it is uncertain. So here then is just a part of the text from the Satipatthana Sutta, from the section on the corpse contemplation. Again, practitioners, 
as though one were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter, being devoured by crows, hawks, vultures, dogs, jackals, various kinds of worms. A skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews. A skeleton without flesh and blood held together with sinews. Disconnected bones scattered in all directions. Bones bleached white, the color of shells. Bones heaped up more than a year old. Bones rotten and crumbling to dust. One compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. In most Western countries, we don't have the opportunity to study actual corpses in decay like that. But the text makes it clear that this is meant to be an imaginative exercise. It says, as though one were to see a corpse. So if it feels useful, you might experiment with this practice creatively and find whatever ways you can just to touch into the truth of this body's mortality. For example, my first teachers in Thailand encouraged us whenever we saw the body of a dead animal, perhaps roadkill of some kind, not to ignore it, but to stop and to reflect. My body too is of this same nature. Thus it will become and cannot escape it. So I was fortunate a few years ago to have the opportunity to go to an autopsy lab in California and look at cadavers, bodies that had been dissected for medical training purposes. And perhaps some of you here have had a similar experience. And for me, it helped me get closer to my own mortality. And it also helped me in relation to my father's death, which came a couple of years later. And I also want to acknowledge that for many societies around the world, the practice of performing autopsies uh, challenges some pretty deep cultural and religious beliefs around death. And even if we don't have those particular beliefs, there's something very challenging about dissecting a dead human body. So when I first went to the autopsy lab, I had a bit of apprehension anticipating that it will be a gruesome or grueling experience. But before we viewed the cadavers, we got to meet with the director of the lab. And just the way she spoke about her work changed my whole attitude. I would have expected that someone who spent day after day cutting up corpses might have become a bit blasé about working with dead bodies, But it was clear from the way she spoke and the way she treated each of the cadavers that she showed us that she had an enormous respect for the human body. So when the time came to look at that first cadaver, I felt a sense of awe, even a kind of sacredness, which is not a word that I use very often. 
And this body had been prepared so that we could see inside it to identify various organs such as the pancreas and the gallbladder, the salivary glands and the brain, to name just a few. And the complexity of those different physical aspects of the body was incredible. It's miraculous that all these different lumps of meat and bone within us are able to function together to support a human life. Just the physical meat and bone aspect of the body is complex enough. Then we also have the chemical system of the hormones, those hormones that are constantly being released to help us digest and to sleep and to wake up and to regulate our moods. And then interacting with all those chemicals is the electrical system within the body. So there's firing of neurons that are sending millions of messages to different parts of our bodies to keep the whole system responding appropriately. And to me it's incredible that all of these different parts function together so well most of the time. But it was also clear to me from being with those dissected corpses that this body is not something I could call myself. So again, the point of this practice is not to be morbid, not to induce despair, but the opposite, to really strengthen the courage to live life more consciously and fully. We don't know when we're going to die. And practicing with that truth now can help bring us more clarity about our deepest aspirations, what really matters to us. The more we can soften our fear of death, the more room we have in our hearts for the Brahma-Vihara qualities to emerge, the qualities of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity that can come up quite naturally when we realize that we're all in the same boat. This is our universal human experience, our human predicament. So I'd like to bring this talk to an end by just a couple of minutes of silence to, if it feels useful, to reflect on the truth of our own mortality in any way that might feel beneficial for you right now. Or if it doesn't feel beneficial, you might instead orient to any of those heart qualities, again, of kindness, compassion, joy, or equanimity as resources in this journey towards freedom. So just a couple of minutes of silence now, touching into what feels true and alive for you in this moment in relation to your own mortality or your own good heart.
For all of us who are learning to come to terms with our vulnerable human bodies, our vulnerable human hearts, our vulnerable human minds, these practices help us to overcome fear and strengthen wisdom and compassion so that our lives might be a contribution to the welfare, the happiness, and the freedom of all beings everywhere. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.